What I want to do in the start is I want to help you understand what's going on in the book of Luke. At this point, there are subtle hints of the new covenant that are being whispered in the background of this text. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, I didn't see the word new covenant anywhere in that text. I want to show you that what is bubbling up at this point in the gospel of Luke is this sort of conflict between the religious leaders of Judaism and Jesus' teaching, which seemed new and revolutionary. And there are some whispers in this text. And I don't know if, if you caught them. Here in these chapters leading up to, to Luke 6 here, we see that the religious leaders of Israel are greatly displeased with Jesus. It's like there's this, this rising tension, animosity that's building like a pressure cooker amongst these religious leaders. The religious establishment does not appreciate the teaching of Jesus. And you've, you've heard whispers of this already. Like, think about Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth. Do you remember? They were so filled with rage at Jesus' teaching that they drove him out of the synagogue, out of the town, and they were going to throw him off of a cliff. That's, that's in Luke chapter 4. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law from across Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem in Luke chapter 5 conclude that Jesus is a blasphemer. Do you remember that? They call him a blasphemer, and it's because he forgave the sins of that lame man. Who can do that but God? You're a blasphemer. That's what they, they concluded. In chapter 5, verse 30, the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling at Jesus. Why? Because he associates with tax collectors and sinners. They criticize his disciples. You heard about this from Pastor Josh last Sunday. They criticize his disciples because they didn't fast like they thought they should. They scrutinize Jesus at every turn. This is what it says in chapter six, verse seven. They were trying to find reason to accuse him. Chapter six, verse 11. This was the end of Pastor Josh's message last Sunday. They were filled with fury because Jesus had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. So here's this Jesus, this rabbi. He's coming on the scene and he's doing something very different. He's teaching in a different way and the religious establishment doesn't like it. These representatives of religion in Israel are growing in their opposition to Jesus. And you need to understand that they were people of the old covenant, the Mosaic law, and they were, they were kind of lost in all of these additional requirements that they added to the Old Testament law. The Jewish believers, or the Jewish leaders, believed that Israel would one day be delivered if they could just more rigorously follow the law. The scribes and Pharisees thought, if, if we could get all of Israel just to be more scrupulous about following the law and all of the traditions that we've laid out, that's gonna work the deliverance of Israel. But Jesus comes and he teaches something very different. He doesn't try to bind people with the law. He doesn't put them under the burden of more obligations. He begins to forgive their sins. He begins to show mercy and grace 
to some of the outcast and the neediest. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And these religious leaders can't grasp that. What does he think he's doing hanging around with tax collectors and sinners? These religious leaders were lost in the letter of the law. They didn't understand the spirit of the law. They had developed a system that was external, legalistic, all about behavior modification. Let me just tell you something. If you come to church and your conclusion at the end of a Sunday sermon is, I just have to behave better, you've missed it, my friends. This, this church is called Gospel Grace Church. You've missed the gospel and you don't understand grace. If you leave here just thinking, I've got a longer to-do list, that's not it, my friends. Jesus comes on the scene of oppressive religiosity. And I even wonder if some of you are here this morning because you've been oppressed by religion. It's been such a weighty thing. You've never been able to meet the standards. Jesus comes on the scene and he's bringing, this is chapter five, verse 36. He's bringing a new garment, he says. New wine, chapter five, verse 38. These pictures that are showing us, I'm not gonna do a patchwork thing. Jesus is bringing a new garment and he's not gonna cut a piece out of his new teaching, his new model, and stick it onto the old one that all of these religious people were following. I'm not gonna do that because then you ruin the new and the old. It doesn't work. He's bringing new wine. It's not gonna be a mixture of old and new. In fact, he's setting the stage for the new covenant that's going to be inaugurated with his death on the cross And so when you see Jesus at this juncture in the Gospel of Luke, you have to realize he's bringing to bear a whole new paradigm. My computer uh, just this week did an update. I can't even remember what it is now, but the screen is different color. You know, it's, it's a new operating system somehow, you know. Jesus is coming and he's bringing a new operating system, a paradigm shift And you see some of the contrast whispered in this text. There's hints here. Did you catch them? Like, for instance, at the opening of the section that I read, Jesus is going to call apostles. It's in verse number 13. He's going to call apostles in Luke 6, verse 13. And I want you to notice, see if you can find in that verse, how many he calls Not five, not nine, not 11, but how many? He calls 12. Some of you are wondering, where did he get that number from? I'm gonna tell you where he got the number from. He got the number because it's analogous to what in the Old Testament? Can anybody guess? The 12 tribes of Israel. He's bringing, listen, those 12 tribes of Israel That's where the people or the nation of Israel came, these people under the old covenant. And Jesus selects 12 apostles and through their teaching, those who follow and understand the gospel message of Jesus are gonna be under the new covenant. He has this parallel here. In our text, there's this section in verses 20 through 26. Do you see them there? There's four things that begin with blessed and then four things that begin with woe. Do you see those? The blessings and the cursings. Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? 
people under the old covenant. They're right on the edge of the Jordan River. We spent over a year studying a book of the Bible called Deuteronomy. They're right on the edge of the river. They're getting ready to cross over. And here he has these people go, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and there are blessings and curses for people of the old covenant. And Jesus calls 12 apostles, like the 12 tribes, and he gives a new set of blessings and curses. Do you see that? There's a new paradigm, a new covenant that he's setting up here in this text. Jesus is going to teach in ways that are going to be very different from the scribes and the Pharisees. They were legalists. They were misguided in their applications of the old covenant. They thought that external compliance was sufficient. When in fact, listen, even under the old covenant, God always wanted internal change. Don't you remember, even from the book of Deuteronomy, he was less concerned about the circumcision of the flesh. What he really wanted was a circumcision of the heart. He always wanted that. But here these, these religious leaders had, had somehow forgot about that. They kind of left that off. They forgot about loving God, Deuteronomy 10, 12, loving God with all your heart and with all your soul. And they zeroed in on keeping the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Oh, and by the way, all of our additional traditions. It became an oppressive burden for the people, which is why you have to understand that Jesus' message was revolutionary. I mean, when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Like, just pause for a second. Maybe you came out of a structure of religion that was very heavy and very difficult. And you never knew how much is enough. Have I done enough good things? Maybe, or maybe you have friends or family members that are just being crushed under the weight of this. Listen to Jesus. He comes on the scene and says, Listen, come to me, all of you who are working, 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 labor and are heavily burdened, heavily laden. And this is what Jesus says, and I will give you rest. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls the yoke or the teaching and demands of the religious system. In Jesus' day, it was burdening people and breaking people. They couldn't keep up with it. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy, come to me. That's what Jesus says. And so this morning, I hope that from the very outset, you will look to Jesus. He's given a new, he's, he's calling a new set of 12 He's giving a new set of blessings and woes. He's setting the stage for a new covenant through his blood. And what he's teaching is this, good behavior is not enough. I, just, I think sometimes we settle for things that are too small. Jesus wants more than just for you to stay out of trouble. Some of you feel really good about your week, I stayed out of trouble. Some of you parents feel really good about your kids. They stayed out of trouble. Jesus wants more than good behavior. He wants your heart. That's what he wants. He wants your heart. And so as he calls disciples and then goes on to teach them here in this passage, 
He's going to talk to them about the sort of heart that he wants amongst his followers. And I want you to ask, as we kind of progress through this passage, I want you to ask yourself, do I have this sort of a heart? Don't zone out. Don't play a game on your phone. Don't get distracted by someone around you. Look at the text as we go through and ask the Lord, Lord, is this the sort of heart that I have? And so as we study this text, this is how it unfolds. Jesus begins by showing us that he wants us to have hearts, listen, that are rightly oriented. And I want you to think kind of like a compass. Which way is it oriented? And I want you to think the compass is like my heart. Which way is it pointed? And here's what Jesus is going to do. And we're going to find this in the section of blessings and woes. He's going to give us kind of these two options. Your heart is either oriented this way or your heart is oriented this way. Either you care about all the things now, you're living for now, immediate gratification, pleasure, ease, wealth, you want all of that now, or your heart is rightly oriented to the then and the there. The future, your reward in heaven. That's the contrast that unfolds in verses 20 through 26. Which way is your heart oriented? Towards these blessings or towards these woes? And this might be easy for us to think, well, my heart's oriented towards God. Yeah, but did you listen to Jesus carefully? Because he upends the value system of the world all around us. I'm just gonna tell you something. Everyone around us is oriented towards the woes. And if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus, your heart, I'm just telling you from the beginning, your heart is oriented the wrong way. It's oriented towards these woes, these things that Jesus says are not blessed, these things that Jesus says will not satisfy. It's only when Jesus does a work in your heart, when he revolutionizes your heart, that your compass setting is oriented the right way towards these blessings. We are surprised to find out what Jesus says in this text. He downgrades the temporary and the transient. He magnifies the eternal and the heavenly. He says, you're all heading towards things you can see and feel and you want right now, but I'm gonna tell you something, there's something invisible that's much greater. And that's where the compass heading of your heart needs to be. If you set your heart energies and bend your life towards obtaining the things that this world values, you will get them. But that's all you'll get. If on the other hand, you orient your heart and you leverage your life in loyalty to God, you might suffer, you might have to eke it out for a while here, but your grand reward will come and you will have eternal joy. My friends, our Lord wants us to truly appreciate and actively pursue future blessings rather than temporary gratification. So is your heart rightly oriented? Is your scale of values properly weighted in light of eternity? And I'm just gonna tell you something, your life will prove it out. Your life will prove it out. Notice in this text what Jesus says are blessed or favored by God in verses 20 through 23. Take a look at it. Be shocked, be amazed. Verse 20, blessed are you who are 
poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall have. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. We're surprised to find out that contrary to many people in this valley who think that the best are blessed, Contrary to the false teachers of the prosperity gospel who say that health and wealth are signs of God's favor, contrary to that, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, hungry, those who weep, and those who are hated, excluded, and reviled. If we're surprised to find out who's blessed, we're probably even more surprised to find out who's not. Look at what he says, verses 24 to 26. Woe to you who are rich, Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to those of you who are well spoken of. Woe to those people. Now I think it's important when we begin to interpret this that we don't isolate these sayings or flatten them out to simply mean, okay, take a look at your bank account. Go ahead, log in online. Oh, $3. I'm poor. That must mean I'm blessed. We can't flatten it out quite like that. Or the people, I'm just going to tell you, the people in second service, you guys come to the first service because it means you get to go to lunch, right? Second service, it's like the stomachs are growling and all those people in second service are thinking to themselves, we're blessed. <laughs> Look at how hungry we are. That's not quite what Jesus is getting at here. There are spiritual overtones in this text. And you can see some of those in, in a parallel preaching sermon that Jesus does on a mountain. So this is different. This is called the Sermon on the Plain. But Jesus does another, another message it's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have to understand that the poor in the context of Judaism referred to those who were helpless, those who were in desperate need, those who were inclined to rely on God because they had nowhere else to turn. Just think about your own life. Have you been in difficult times? Have you faced desperate trials? Have you suffered deeply and found yourself in those moments especially tuned towards God? Has that happened in your life? Have you gone through a deep trial where you find yourself praying more? This is what he's saying, blessed are the poor. They've got nowhere else to turn but to God. Blessed are those who are hungry. Where else are they gonna find food? They look to heaven. You almost hear echoes of like the psalmist. Psalm chapter 34, verse six. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Contrast this to like, the, the parable of the, of the rich young ruler or the story of the rich young ruler. Here in Matthew chapter 19, this man comes to Jesus and he's like, I follow all the law and I wanna follow you. And he says, well, go ahead and sell all that you have and come follow me. And this is what the text says. It says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In the end, he didn't need Jesus very much, did he? Because he had great possessions possessions. In Luke 18, this is, the, this is uh, the commentary we get from Jesus. He says, 
how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What he's getting at here in these beatitudes in our text is that a person's economic condition has the potential to help or hinder them when it comes to orienting their life towards God. Empty pockets and aching stomachs may cause people to more likely look to heaven. Whereas when you're rich and full, you might turn to your own resources, your own self-sufficiency. You may be insulated from the very needs that turn you to the Lord. The rich will have consolation in this life, but in this life only. Jesus goes on and he blesses those who weep and are persecuted in verses 21 and 22. And he says, although there may be tears and sorrow for a time now, even though your hearts may be distraught with the wicked condition of the world around you, one day the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. For those who are persecuted for godliness, Jesus wants them to take heart. Take heart, you who suffer for godliness. You are in the company of the true prophets of old. I was reading about a man named Earl Rounds. He lived, uh, he was born in 1901. He, uh, he died in 1943. He was actually a missionary in the Philippines uh, when, um, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. So he was in the Philippines uh, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor is bombed, and subsequently the Japanese invade Manila and uh, surrounding regions. So Earl Round uh, and his family had to flee to the mountains. They, they went up into these mountains and they ministered to, uh, to Filipino nationals, as well as Americans who were there like doing guerrilla warfare against the Japanese. In one of his last letters, Earl wrote this. I believe the missionaries are going to see real persecution before this thing is over. But it's one of the greatest privileges I can think of to be here as a missionary. We hope to see you all again. But if we should be denied that blessed joy, we can meet again in the land that is fairer than day. Do you know what he's understanding? He's understanding what Jesus says. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Earl and his family ends up being captured in 1943 and executed by the Japanese. Great is your reward in heaven. I just want to ask you, are you willing to suffer for Jesus' name with the faith that great is your reward in heaven are you willing to be poor i just wonder if some people are poor because they've just given away their stuff they've invested their things in eternity are you willing to do that because great is your reward in heaven i wonder if there are some who are hungry because they've shared their meal are you willing to do that because great is your reward in heaven here's what jesus is getting at where is your heart oriented like if I could look at your time, your money, your affections, where your heart drifts, 
does it drift towards heaven? Is it oriented towards great is your reward in heaven? Or is your life oriented towards here? I want to be full. I want to be rich. I want people to know me. I want them to speak well of me. If you want that, you'll get it. Jesus says, and that's all you'll get. But if you orient your heart towards heaven, if you value the things Jesus says are valuable, then great is your reward in heaven. There was a philosopher, theologian named Soren Kierkegaard. Don't try to say his name. It's okay. He lived from 1813 to 1855. He used to tell a story about a duck. I don't like telling all of these stories, but this one I thought was worth telling. He used to tell a story about a duck who was flying with his flock in the springtime northward across Europe. During the flight, this duck came down to a barnyard where there were tame ducks. He enjoyed some of the corn, decided to stay an hour, then a day, then a week, then a month. And finally, because he relished the good fare and the safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. But one autumn day, when the flock of wild ducks were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard and called out to him below. The vacationed duck was stirred with a strange thrill of joy and delight, and with great flapping of wings, he rose in the air to join his old comrades in their flight. But he found that the good fare had made him so soft and heavy, he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. And so he dropped back down again into the barnyard and said to himself, oh well, my life is safe here and the food is good. Every spring and autumn when he heard the wild ducks calling, his eyes would gleam for a moment and he would begin to flap his wings. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry. But he paid not the slightest attention to them for he no longer had affections for the things above. And I just wonder how many have lost their affection for things above. Jesus is saying, blessed are those whose hearts are oriented towards him. My friends, you can't have both. You can't have both. You can't have the values of Christ and the values of this world. You can't serve both. Stop trying. Some of you want the best of both worlds. You can't. You can't have both worlds. Discipleship is otherworldly. Stop looking at the things in the here and now. Paul put it like this. Though my outward man perish, my inward man is being renewed day by day. The slight momentary affliction is working for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So I don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen, these are all transient. The things that are unseen, those are eternal. William Barclay put it this way, the joy of heaven will amply 
compensate for the troubles of earth if your heart is rightly oriented. If you were to go to Holyrood Abbey in Edinburgh, you can read the epitaph of Thomas Lowe's. This is what it says. I just want you to picture reading this tomb inscription. This is what it says. One instance among thousands of the uncertainty of human life and the instability of earthly possessions and enjoyments. Born to ample property, he for several years experienced a distressing reverse of fortune. And no sooner was he restored to his former affluence than it pleased divine providence to withdraw this together with his life. And then this is what the epitaph says. It says, reader. So it addresses people who will read it. Reader, be thou taught by this to seek those riches which can never fail and those pleasures which are at God's right hand forevermore. In other words, reader, orient your heart towards God. Jesus is teaching his disciples in this text. And he's teaching them that what he wants are hearts rightly oriented towards him. But here's the second thing he teaches. He wants not only that, but he also wants them to have hearts that are utterly distinct. Rightly oriented, utterly distinct. I want to tell you something. Throughout time, there has been no shortage of people trying to teach you a better way. This is the way, the Mandalorian said. Listen, this has been going on forever. Anyone can teach a form of moral improvement, life reform, just go to the self-help section of Barnes and Noble, right? Frankie, Frankie works here, Barnes and Noble guy. Just go to the self-help section. You can find all sorts of messages that will be about improving your life. Subscribe to a podcast, watch a YouTube channel, something that's going to motivate you to do better. Here's a positive message for your day. But I want to ask you something. Is it distinct? Or is it the same white noise, repackaged, reinvented, reverberated? And ultimately what you get is you get someone who's trying to use you to elevate themselves. This happens and happens and happens and happens all the time. That's what was happening with these religious leaders in Jesus' day. Moral improvement, life reform. But they were blind to their own needs. Have you ever wondered how much, you know, you, you read these self-helps and you wonder, I wonder if the author actually does this. Jesus asks the crowd, look at verse 39. Take a look at the text. Jesus asks the crowd, Verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? In other words, he looks at all these people and says, do you really want to follow these blind religious leaders? Is, is that what you want to do? You'll never get beyond them. Look at verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. If you follow these blind religious leaders, if you listen to their blah, blah, blah of self-improvement, 
you will never get beyond them. These guys are just parroting the same spiel. And what's ironic is they're the ones that need the most work. They tell you, work on this, work on this, work on this, work on this. And they're blind to their own need to work. I almost imagine this text. Like, remember it says that there are all these people gathered around. I almost imagine this text. That some of those people are scribes and Pharisees. Because remember, they've been very critical of Jesus. You can almost see him kind of like glancing off in the crowd where they were standing with their long black robes on. Verse 41. And just kind of hinting their way. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Here are these Pharisees, and they, they were really good at noting everyone's deficiencies. We still use the word Pharisee to call people who do that. Like, we, you're such a Pharisee. We still use that, that phrase. They're always nitpicking. They always have, a, they're a holier-than-thou type people. Jesus looks at them and says, how can you say to your brother, oh, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself don't see that the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. Listen, we don't need hypocritical help. We don't need another message of self-improvement. We need hearts that are rightly oriented. We need hearts that are utterly distinct because we follow Jesus' commands. And I'm gonna tell you something. Jesus started calling his followers to do something that was very different. It was very unique. It was distinct. You say, well, what did Jesus call his followers to do? I was going to tell you, this is what he says two times in our text. He says, I'm going to tell you what to do. I want you to love. Now, that might sound like, oh, well, that's what everybody says. I mean, listen, you probably can walk around Salt Lake City and find t-shirts this week that say love. They may have various colors. They may be in, in different shapes and sizes. It might have a heart. We just got through Valentine's Day. You can see all kinds of stuff. Listen, guys, by the way, Valentine's Day cards are on discount. Okay, so if you forgot to get one, go. Right? You can see love all over the place. But I want to tell you how Jesus' message was utterly distinct. Here it is. He didn't just say love. Anyone can say that. What did Jesus say? He said, love your enemies. You're not going to find any shirts with that on it. Love your enemies, verse 27. Do you see it there? Verse 27, love your enemies. And in case you didn't get it, he gives three parallel echoes. What I'm saying is do good to those who hate you, verse 27. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is counterintuitive. I want you to pause for a second. And I want you to think about those who have done you wrong. Who's on your enemy list? Or frenemy list? Who's on the list? I, I have a list. I have a list. I could tell you the number one name. I won't. But I, but I was convicted as I worked through this passage. I asked God to help me pray for this person. I thought, would you help me pray for this person? This person has wronged me. This person is a liar. This person's a thief. This person stole. 
would you help me to pray for this person? Would you help me to be able to do good to this person? And this is really hard. It might be your spouse this morning. I know you're sitting together, but you're not talking together. Will you love them? It might be someone in your extended family or a person who sits in the cubicle next to you at work. Jesus says something that's utterly distinct. He says, don't just love. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Just in case we don't know how to put it into practice, he says in verse number 29, let me give you a few illustrations. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. This is talking about an insult. Much like, you know, in in old British culture, they would take off their formal glove and slap someone with their glove. I insult you. You know, in Jewish culture, they would take the back of the hand and Okay, if someone's gonna insult you, then let them do it again. If they're gonna disrespect you, don't fight for your dignity. Stay engaged, remain vulnerable, even to further insults. Look at verses 29 and 30. From the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Jesus is doing something very distinct. Be open-hearted, be generous, be self-sacrificing towards those who ask for help and those who help themselves. There's an interesting illustration of this in Victor Hugo's famous book called Les Miserables. We meet this convict named Jean Valjean. After spending 19 years in jail, and in the galleys for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family, he's finally released. But his past, it just seems to keep haunting him. He tries to take his first steps into freedom, but he's repeatedly refused shelter for the night. Only the town bishop allows him in. Anybody remember this? He's allowed to spend the night there, but when the old man is asleep, Valjean repays his host's hospitality by stealing his silverware. He doesn't get far, however. The police pick him up and bring him back, but the bishop responds this way. He says, the silverware is a what? Is a gift. Do you see in verse 30? From the one who took away his goods, he did not demand them back. It's almost a picture of what's going on here. Here, Valjean steals. He says, I'm not gonna demand them back. It's, it's a gift. And in the story, that demonstration of love makes a difference. Do you know what Jesus is calling his disciples to? He's calling his disciples to utterly distinct love. Love for their enemies. Now, one of the commentators I read on this text, he highlighted an important caveat. And I think this is important for me just to say. Jesus is talking about the absorption of cruel treatment, the giving away of goods. The commentator says this, Jesus is not calling for a woman who's being abused by her spouse to feel constrained to subject herself to continued harm. Nor is he suggesting that in the giving of money we should give to a heroin addict to fuel his enslavement. That's not the sort of love we should take part in. 
No, what's happening in this text is Jesus is showing us distinctly Christian love. It's the sort that in the crucible of insult and suffering, you continue to love your enemy. Jesus is explaining that's not natural. That's not what normally happens. That's not the shirts you see around the city this week. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In other words, is there anything that is utterly distinct about your love? Or are you just like the rest of the world? You only love people who love you back. You only give to people who will return. Or is your love like Jesus? Love your enemies, verse 35. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, you should underline this in your Bible, he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. You need to love your enemies because God loves you. We have this overestimated opinion of ourselves that somehow God got a good deal when he got us. No. We were his enemies. We were rebels. We were running in the opposite direction. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ernest Gordon uh, was a prisoner of war in World War II at the J- Japanese internment camp called the River Kwai. They made a movie about this later on. It was a place where 16,000 prisoners of war died. They were worked to death building this railroad in this prisoner of war camp. Ernest Gordon was a survivor. He and other POWs when they were released, were making their long trek back to Britain, and the first part of it was through Asia um, on, a, on a train. And they get to this uh, rail yard. He writes about it. They stop in this rail yard, and they're next to a train of wounded Japanese soldiers who now themselves were prisoners of war. This is how Gordon describes it. Quote, they were in a shocking state. I have never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. And there was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. These were the enemy. And then Gordon goes on to describe how he and some of the other soldiers responded. Listen, quote, without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two with water canteens in their hands. They went over to the Japanese train to help them. We knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind their wounds to smile and say a kind word. Where did Gordon and his friends learn that kind of love? 
They learned it from the cross of Jesus, who died for enemies. My friends, we're supposed to love our enemies because that's what the Father has done for us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. I want you to think about how Jesus, he doesn't just call his disciples to do this stuff. It happened to him. He was struck on the cheek. They took away his cloak. They cursed him and abused him and still he loved. I just think in our text, you know, our text opens with this list of apostles. Do you remember out of all the disciples, he calls 12. Do you remember who the last one was that's listed there? Judas Iscariot, who would be a traitor. We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus knew from the very beginning who he was. And yet think about three years of Jesus walking and talking with Judas, pouring out what? Love, pouring out love. He calls his disciples to utterly distinct hearts, hearts that love enemies, hearts that they don't condemn, they're not judgmental. Instead, they forgive and give. You see that in verses 37 and 38? I mean, think about how distinct this is. Jesus teaches them, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That one is a, that last phrase you should meditate on. If you're a judgmental person, if you walk around condemning people in your extended family or neighbors or coworkers, you're, you're condemnatory. If you're the sort of person that judges others harshly, harshly, that picks people apart, if you've got a critical spirit, if you're a fault finder, he says the measure you use will be the measure that's used against you. Rather, he says, stop being judgmental and start forgiving. Start releasing your resentment. Friends, I imagine in a room this size, some of you, look right up here, some of you are bitter, you're resentful, you're nursing wounds. There's people you probably don't talk to. You've distanced yourself from them. You want nothing to do with them. And Jesus just says this, stop and release that resentment. Stop. Start forgiving. Experience freedom in life without bitterness. As you've been forgiven, start forgiving others. Get rid of your skepticism and resentment and your fear and open your heart, open your hands and start giving because the measure you use will be used on you. In other words, ask yourself this question this morning. Ask yourself this question. Do you want God to forgive you the way that you are forgiving others? Is that what you want? Do you want God to be generous towards you the way that you're generous towards others? Oh, my friends, Jesus wants us to have hearts that are rightly oriented, utterly unique, and finally this. He wants us to have hearts that are deeply changed, deeply changed. 
because really that's the only way this is going to work. I mean, there's no way you can love like Jesus wants you to love. There's no way that you're going to value the things Jesus wants you to value unless he changes your heart. If you don't have a changed heart, then everything I've said so far sounds ridiculous. It sounds foolish. Why in the world would you orient your heart towards what's invisible when you can have stuff now? You're going to have to have a changed heart to understand that. Why in the world would you love your enemies? You're going to have to have a changed heart to understand that. Why should I forgive this person who's hurt me so bad? You're going to have to have a changed heart. You need a deeply changed heart. You need a supernatural work of God. That's what you need. And Jesus illustrates this with two little stories right at the end. He talks about trees and he talks about houses. In verses 43 through 45, he says, good trees bear good fruit, bad, fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. In other words, the health of the root is seen in the quality of the fruit. And you could put it in a spiritual sense. What he means is the health of your heart is known by the words that come out of your mouth. Verse 45, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever notice how nothing shows the state of our heart like the words that pop out of our mouth when we have no caution or guard? But it's just like all of our guards are down. Something just pops out. All of a sudden, you're like, wow, sometimes we surprise ourselves at what's in our hearts. Our speech betrays us. There are some people that say, I can control my external persona. No one's going to know what's going on inside of me. And Jesus is like, no, that's like taping figs to a thorn bush. Or that's like hanging some grapes on a bramble bush, verse 44. Behavior modification won't work if your heart is corrupt. Bad trees can't sustain good fruit. Bad hearts can't sustain good works. Your external behavior will inevitably betray your heart. What you need is deep heart change. Like Isaiah put it in Isaiah 55, 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. In other words, you need him to actually change the thorn and briar bush into something that's good. You need to let him do his deep change. That's about the trees. Then he goes on and talks about two houses, verses 46 through 49. Because there will be some people who will mouth allegiance to God. They'll show up at Sunday service. They'll say, Lord, Lord, sing the praise songs. But then they leave here and their lives don't prove it. In other words, friends, here's the deal. You can show up for an hour and a half on a Sunday and sing all the songs and fool all the people here. But the real question is, what do you look like the rest of the week? What do you look like in your home? What do you look like at work? What do you look like in the sports field, in the gym? What do you look like then? It's not enough to just say, Lord, Lord. You actually have to live out, prove out your allegiance to God. In the, in the famous allegory called The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, this is like Aaron Boyce's favorite book and Pops Shingledecker, this is his favorite book. In that book, Christian and faithful are on this journey to the celestial city. And they meet a man named Talkative. Listen to what Christian says to faithful about this man, Talkative. He talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of new birth. 
but he knows but only to talk of them. The soul of religion is the practice part. This talkative thinks that hearing and saying will make a good Christian, and thus he deceives his own soul. It's not enough to talk about it, to merely hear a message. Are you doing it? And that's the contrast that Jesus brings to bear in the story of these two houses. One house is quickly built up. There's no foundation. There's no deep work. They just hear what God says, and they think that hearing is enough. And when the storm comes, it's totally wiped out. If you have a faith that only hears, but doesn't change your life, it's not the sort of faith you want. Because when you hit difficulty and trials, it'll be gone. You'd be like, what happened to my faith? I lost my faith. You never had your faith. There was no foundation. There was no deep work. God has to do a deep work in your heart. It's like the foundation that you dig this hole. You get down to the bedrock. There's a foundation of God's deep work. And then when the storm comes and the wind rages and and the waters swell, you stay firm because you have been deeply changed by God. Some merely talk a talk, but those who have deeply changed hearts are able to walk the walk. And it's because of God's work in them. Well, you may be here at the end of the sermon this morning thinking, Jesus wants me to have a rightly oriented heart, okay? He he wants me to have an utterly distinct heart, okay, okay. He wants me to have a changed heart. How can this happen? I love what the church father Augustine said. He said, O Lord, O Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. In other words, you want me to have a heart like that? Then give it to me, Lord. Do you know that needs to be our prayer this morning? If there is some way that the Lord has stirred you and you're thinking to yourself, I I need to change that. That needs to be different. I'm not what Christ wants in this way. If that's the case, then just pray to God. Right now, just pray, God, command what you will, but give what you command. The good news this morning is he will. Remember how in the beginning I said there's these hints of the new covenant? Twelve apostles, woes and blessings, Do you know what the new covenant is? Here's the new covenant prophesied of by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 25. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My friends, Jesus came to establish the new covenant and give us new hearts. He can give you a new heart today, a heart of love for your enemies, a heart of forgiveness for your offenders, an appetite for eternal things, a desire to obey his commands. He can give you that heart if you'll just ask him.